morning. It's like, uh, you know, I, I, I always think it's awkward when I preach because it's like I tell you good morning at the beginning of the service and I just say it again. But this is like preaching Tyler. I was worship leading Tyler, now I'll be preaching Tyler. So, good morning. <laughs> uh, it's, it's great to see you. So, um, if this is your first time here, um, we're in a series in Romans. And so, the title of the next few sermons is on the screen called Good News for All, for All. And so as we transition out of Romans 9 into Romans 10 this morning, we will see the good news that is indeed for all people, for all people. But I have an exciting thing to tell you this morning. You know, scientists will tell you one of the most interesting things to study in all of creation are black holes. Heard of a black hole deep into space? Right, here's the uh, science definition of a black hole. A region of space having a gravitational field so intense that no matter or radiation can escape. It's a black hole. Well, you know, I actually did major in biology in uh, college, and I'm here to tell you this morning that I have an unbelievable scientific discovery that I want to share with you here first. We don't have to go to space to study black holes. I found one here on Earth. You ready for this? I found one. It's called the Disney Store. <laughs> it's called the Disney Store with my daughter, Millie and her mother, Gwen. It's the black hole here on Earth. It's, it's the same definition. A region having a gravitational field so intense that no matter or radiation could ever escape. <laughs> it's the black hole. You know, um, Millie's favorite, my daughter Millie, her favorite um, movie right now is The Little Mermaid. You know, she goes through cycles of favorite movies, and right now it's The Little Mermaid. And I actually discovered why in watching it the other day. Millie's theme song is in The Little Mermaid. Her song for her life is in there. You want to hear the lyrics? Here it is, Millie's theme song. Look at this stuff, isn't it neat? Wouldn't you think my collection's complete? Wouldn't you think I'm the girl, the girl who has everything? Look at this trove, treasures untold. And this is my line here. How many wonders can one cavern hold? <laughs> Looking around here, you think, sure, she's got everything. Back to Millie. I've got gadgets and gizmos aplenty. I've got who's it's and what's it's galore. You want thingamabobs? I've got 20. But who cares? No big deal. I want more. <laughs> Please, Daddy. Yeah, that's Millie's theme song. And um, some older parents in our uh, congregation have told me that this only will continue as she gets older. So um, that's Millie's theme song. And so that's why there's that black hole of the Disney store whenever we walk past it at the mall. But in all seriousness, you know, for, for Gwen and I, the Disney store is often, you know, Millie's prize for being a good girl, right? You be a good girl this week, maybe we'll take you to the Disney store and get you a prize. And it's always fun to see which prize she chooses. In the Disney store, which prize will she choose? Well, during the past few weeks, we've been in Romans chapter 9, 
And we've been looking at and thinking about God's sovereign choice. We left off with last week what I believe is probably one of the hardest verses in the entire Bible. One of the things that leaves us, what, what is going on here? And it's Romans 9, um, verse 22. You can turn in your Bibles there with me if you have them. Romans chapter 9, verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Now, Romans 9, it gives rise to this doctrine that we've been talking about the past few weeks known as unconditional election. Unconditional election. It basically says that because we are spiritually dead, we are spiritually dead, then we are unable to choose God. Lazarus was dead in the tomb. Ephesians 2 says we were dead in our trespasses. And so we are dead in our trespasses. It's God who must choose us. It's God who must choose us. And the unconditional part of election comes in because God does not choose people because of anything good in them. Okay? God does not choose people based off of anything good in them. There is no spiritual condition in certain people that results in God choosing them. God's election and God's choosing is indeed unconditional. No conditions. When Millie goes into the Disney store to choose her prize, to pick out a prize, she has certain conditions in picking the prize she wants. Millie's condition is, I'm going to find the most expensive thing in the store and pick that one. <laughs> That's Millie's condition. But it doesn't work that way. Not so with God and his choosing. This analogy may seem a little silly, but I guess we'll just stick with it. I've always thought of it this way. If, if Millie would go into the Disney store, let's say, and ev they had all of the same exact toy. It's, that's all they have, all the exact same toy. Why would she end up picking the one she picks? Why? Well, the reason can't be found in the toy. They're all the same. There is no difference between them. No toy is better than the other toy. No toy deserves to be picked over another toy. The reason for picking this toy over that toy can only be found in Millie. That is unconditional election. The reason for God's sovereign choice, it's not found in any condition not found in any action of that man or that man or that man. It's found totally in God. Totally 100% in God. And that's what Romans 9, 1 to 23 is all about. That's what we've been talking about the past few weeks. That's what it's all about. God alone provides salvation. 
And he does so through the unconditional election before the foundation of the world. That's how God chooses. That's what Romans 9 is all about. And even more importantly, Paul wrestles with this and he clarifies for us that in doing so, God is perfectly wise, he's perfectly just, and he's perfectly good in his unconditional election. So you know what we like to do? We like to stop right here in Romans 9 and just debate it. Just get in this big, long debate about it. Have you ever read past this verse? Really? I mean, what comes beyond this verse, maybe even more important than what's in Romans 1 uh, to 23, 9, 1 to 23. When we don't finish Romans 9, when we don't look beyond this big debate that we have, we miss an even bigger point that Paul is trying to show us. He's actually teaching us about unconditional election, this doctrine. He's teaching it to us in order to show us something else. And I actually think what he's trying to show us is the main point of Romans chapter 9. So let's keep going then and look at Romans 9 verse 24. Romans 9, 24 to 29. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who, are not, those, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, he would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What in the world does that mean? <laughs> well, here's what's happening, okay? In a nutshell, Paul is using this historical argument. He's talking about the Jews and the Gentiles, and he's showing us, he's telling us that some Gentiles are included in whom he is called, and some Jews are not included. This is a big deal. This would have been a big deal to hear, especially back then. Still a big deal for us, because there's even a bigger picture going on here. Why does this matter? Why is he talking about this? Well, to make sense of it all, this Jew-Gentile thing, without getting into some big dissertation about it, let's just remember back to the whole thesis statement of the whole book of Romans. Remember this, we started our whole series on these few verses. Romans 1, 16 to 17. That's the thesis statement of the whole book of Romans. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Here you go, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. And here's the key. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. 
This is so important. This is what Paul is doing. Listen, here's what it is. Ready? In Romans 9, verse 1 to 23, Paul is talking about unconditional election. He's talking to us about how it works, what it is. And then in verse 24, through this Jew and Gentile picture, he begins to show us that if election has no conditions, then listen, here's the good news for us. If our election is completely free and unconditional, then our justification is free and unconditional. How we are saved is also free and unconditional. There is no conditions. He's telling us that God saves sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Not by any condition of works that man may boast, but that it may be to the glory of God alone. He's showing how these two things, they work together. It has to be this way. For you to be saved by grace alone, it has to be unconditional election. That's what he's telling us in Romans 9. The righteous shall live by faith, Jew and Gentile alike. The righteous shall live by faith, period. End of the argument. That's the argument. The righteous shall live by faith, period. Isn't that cool? Isn't that good news? Some of us, I too, struggled with making Romans 9 this cold-hearted passage about how God, you know, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. It's, it's a hard passage. But we have to look at the whole picture. This chapter is really about the incredible good news of how God saves us. He does through, through faith alone. Faith alone, not by any condition of works. Like, any condition of works. None. Not by the kind of person we are, or not by any action that we will do, or whatever. By faith alone, in grace alone. Then he continues on, in verse 30, and he says, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Here, why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. That's the whole crux of the matter. But as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Look at that. Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. That is the crux of the passage right there. That's the crux of Romans 9. He's talking about, listen, either there's righteousness through faith or there's righteousness through the law. That's it. Righteousness through faith or righteousness through the law. And Paul tells us what happened. Israel pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, 
but it didn't succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They went about it all the wrong way. Israel treated the law as if it could successfully be used to commend themselves to God through keeping the law. It was a law-based, works-based salvation instead of a faith in Christ alone. Now, before we see the problem of righteousness based through the law, righteousness based off of works, as a problem that Israel had many years ago, I'd like to share a quote with you. Self-righteousness is not just a Jewish problem, but a problem of people of all religions, including professing Christians. Let me read that again. Self-righteousness is not just a Jewish problem, but a problem of people of all religions, including professing Christians. Do you pursue righteousness through the law? It's called self-righteousness. Do you pursue righteousness through the law? Here's a great, great quote from R.C. Sproul. Listen to this. Here's where the rubber meets the road. And we discover if we are harboring a secret pride, believing that we deserve salvation more than others. Here's a gross insult to God's grace and a monument to our arrogance. It is a reversion to the worst form of legalism by which we ultimately put our trust in our own work. Who struggles with that? I know I do. I struggle with this deeply. Because listen, at the core of every judgment on one another, the core of every judgment on one another, every arrogant statement that we make, and every prideful heart lies a pursuit of self-righteousness. It's at the very core of all of those things. Now, Christians know that our righteousness only comes from Christ and cannot be obtained by the law. That's a core of Christian belief, yes. But because of our sin nature, it is a constant temptation to all of us to believe we are or can be righteous in and of ourselves. Isn't it? It is a constant temptation to all of us to believe we are or can be righteous in and of ourselves. Here's what that looks like. We're going to take a self-righteous test this morning. All right? Everyone ready? Everyone ready for your test? Okay? Now, when I say you, I don't mean like you, you, you. I gave my test. I gave myself this test, and I'll share my results with you later. But I'm going to read some statements. And these statements help diagnose you if you're sometimes self-righteous. Okay? Here we go. Ready? Okay. You ready? You know you're being self-righteous if you pick out a role in Scripture or even make one up loosely based on something in Scripture and really follow it. I mean, you really outwardly follow it. You're like, this is my thing and I'm following it. And then you feel really good about yourself when you follow it. And you're like, I follow that role, man. I follow it. And then when others don't follow that role, you're like, bam, you messed up my role. Shame on you. And you picket people and picket people. That's being self-righteous. It is. Here's another one. (laughs) 
You say things on Facebook about your faith in Christians that you'd never say in person. Being a little self-righteous. Why? You don't listen or receive instruction well. Self-righteous. You get defensive when people challenge you. I saw that one and I was like, hmm, I wonder what my wife Gwen would think about that one. I get defensive when people challenge. Yeah, I can be a little self-righteous, that's for sure. Here's one. Now maul on this one for a second. Sometimes when you hear nothing but Jesus, it makes you just a little angry. Just a little angry. What up? Wait, nothing but just a little bit. Self-righteous. When you hear a convicting sermon, your initial thought is, man, I really wish so-and-so were here to hear that. (laughs) That's that's a little self-righteous. So here's your self-test. If you just listen to all those statements and thought, I don't do that. I don't do any of that. I don't know what he's talking about. You're probably pretty (laughs) self-righteous. Sorry. Now, if you can't identify some things on that list, I actually have good news for you, okay? You're not alone. You're not alone. I struggle with those things too. And as we will see, as we pursue nothing but Jesus, our view of him, you know what happens? Our view of his righteousness increases. It increases. And so then the view of our righteousness decreases. That's what nothing but Jesus is all about. As we see his righteousness, the view of our righteousness decreases and only increases in Jesus. Self-righteousness is a struggle for us, isn't it? And this struggle happens when we forget the truth of Romans 9, that our election is unconditional. Unconditional. And justification is by grace Through faith in Christ alone. Nothing else, nothing but Jesus. Nothing else. We have a dog named Desmond. He's such a good boy. He really is. I love my doggy. Um, He's a German short hair pointer. And so when we first got him, he was a little puppy, and he started getting these like red spots on himself. And he started itching and he was like, um, his hair was falling out a little bit. We're like, what's going on with Desmond? So we take him to the vet and the vet's like, hey, it's not really a big deal. Desmond probably just has an allergy. I'm like, what? An allergy? What in the world? So um, they say, here, just feed him this food and he should, he should be fine. So the vet takes us over to the shelf, and there's this big shelf of food. And the bag is like, like this big. And she's like, yeah, it's like uh, 70 bucks a bag. I'm like, like Desmond, you're, you're going to have to figure this out for yourself, buddy. I don't know. I don't know. You, you might just have to itch yourself raw, okay? But I found an alternative food for Desmond that was not nearly as expensive and still did the trick. It has like salmon in it and I don't know, blah, 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 blah. It's called Purina Pro Plan, okay? So that's what we fed Desmond ever since he was a puppy. And he doesn't really have the skin problem anymore. But you know what happens sometimes? If we feed him food off the table, 
Or we feed him like kibbles and bits. That's like doggy McDonald's food, right? If, if, we, if we feed him food like that, you know what he does? I mean, he like devours it. Like, look out. He's coming for that, that good stuff, man. I mean, he eats his other food, but he eats it, you know, at a normal pace. But put that other stuff in front of him. He's like, I want some more food. Guess what? That food, that doggy junk food, that is our self-righteousness, isn't it? It's part of our sinful nature. We've been justified by grace, and yet we just keep going back to that junk food, self-righteousness, because it makes us feel so good about ourselves, doesn't it? Self-righteousness is our doggy junk food. We're so much better than those people there. It makes us feel so much better about ourselves. But you know what happens when we do that? You know what happens when we do that? We figuratively get all these like nasty red spots all over ourselves. And people are like, ew, that's nasty. It's true though, isn't it? When we become self-righteous and we can't see our self-righteousness, guess what? It's kind of how we're viewed. That's self-righteousness. Who wants to be around that kind of a person, frankly? Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, it says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The pull of temptation to justifying ourselves, self-righteousness, man, it's a strong pull, isn't it? It is some good junk food, but the words upon Galatians is, stand firm, therefore, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery, for it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. As our election is unconditional, so our justification is by grace through faith alone. Nothing in us, no self-righteousness of our own, nothing, nothing but Jesus. That's what Paul is telling us. So let's continue on in Romans chapter 10. Romans 10, 1 to 3. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they may have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Now we're in Romans 10, and Paul is describing those who have strived to obtain a righteousness through the law. That's who he is describing. By the way, if you've never heard me preach before, you'll know that I really like to just like go into it deep. And I think personally, that's what, that's what we should do. We should take the law to the fullest extent. We should see our self-righteousness in its fullest extent. Because you know that the good news is coming in just a few minutes, right? So just hold on. But as we're still diagnosing ourselves and seeing our sin and need for a Savior even more, let's get back to this. So far we've talked about self-righteousness as a struggle in our hearts. But Paul is saying that for some, it's not a struggle. Some just don't get it. Some just don't get it. And I don't necessarily want to go here. It's, it's uncomfortable to go here, I know. But it is unavoidable. Paul is talking about those who don't get it. 
They don't get it. Look at verse 1 again. It says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. That they may be saved. That's not a struggle. That's, that's just not getting it. Verse 2 again, he's describing this problem. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. A zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. A zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Reminds me of another passage in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then we do all these things. That's a zeal for God. But as we see in verse 23, it's a zeal, though, not according to knowledge. Because in verse 23, he says, And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. We all struggle with being self-righteous, yes. But I wouldn't be doing this passage justice if I didn't just ask you the question. Do you get it at all? Do you get it at all? Have you actually seen your need for a Savior? Have you seen it? Have you seen your need for a Savior? Not to follow the rules and strive to be the best you can be, but have you seen your need for a Savior to do what you could never do for yourself? Have you seen it? I'll ask the same question Paul's asking in Romans 9 and 10. This is the question. Is it righteousness through the law for you? Or is it righteousness through faith for you? John Calvin, he says, the first step to obtaining the righteousness of God is to renounce our own righteousness. That's the first step. And this was the very story of Paul. I love this. I love it because we can so clearly identify with this guy. Philippians chapter 3, he says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And some of us get stuck here. We just live here. Look what I am, look what I do, and how good I am. But you don't read verse 7. We don't get verse 7. He's saying, by the way, Paul's saying, if you think that you can obtain a righteousness through the law, I was way ahead of you. <laughs> I came way closer than any of you did. Way closer. And guess what? He tells us this in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I had counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, be found in him. And here he goes, he's spelling it out, not having a righteousness of my own 
that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The first step to obtaining the true righteousness of God is to renounce our own righteousness. So, this morning, whether you're a person who struggles with self-righteousness, like me, or you're a person who, who maybe hasn't gotten it yet, whatever the case is, I have some really, really, really good news for you this morning. And it's found in Romans 10, verse 4. And the conclusion for all of us is the same. Look at Romans 10, 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. If you rearrange the verse a little bit, it actually says this. For the goal, the end of the law, is Christ for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, in order for us to really get this, what does this mean? In order for us to really get this, I want for you to put yourself in the midst of one of the most famous stories in all of the Bible. You're an Israelite. And you're camping out in front of this huge sea. You're camping. When all of a sudden, you see that the Egyptian army, led by Pharaoh himself, is coming after you to destroy you. You could say that sin and death is coming for you, ready to destroy you. But then you hear these words. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. But man, you see that army coming for you, and in front of you is this big, vast sea. Geographically, if you haven't caught on yet, it's called the Red Sea. But for our purposes this morning, we're going to call it the Sea of the Law. And it is vast, it is wide, and it is deep, and there is no end in sight, none. And this sea, that's the only way to escape this deadly army that is coming for you. But it is so very wide and so very deep. Then you look, and a guy in your camp, he, he starts running back to Egypt. He says, I don't care about this thing. I'm, I'm out of here. I'm back there. He just, he just ran to sin and death. That's a dead end back there. Where's he going? And then you see another guy. He jumps in the sea. And he says, I think I can make it. 
I think I can swim the length of the sea. I can do it. And you're like, really? So he starts swimming and swimming, and he's just getting so tired. He's exhausted. And he looks back, and he really hasn't gone very far. Not far at all. And he looks ahead, and he sees no end in sight. So you say, I'm not, I can't go back there. But I can't get across the sea. What am I going to do? And so now you've come to the place where you see this army coming. It's barreling down on you. And you see the vastness of the sea of the law in front of you. And you know that you cannot make it on your own. You can't swim across the sea on your own. So here's what you do. The only thing you can do, you just fall to your knees in complete surrender. You lift up your hands and say, where to go? Where to go? I'm doomed. The army of sin and death is coming. It's barreling down on me. And there's nothing that I can do. Little do you know that around the same time, there's a man talking with God himself. And the command given to this man from God is lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And so there you are. You're staring at the vastness of the sea. You have your hands in surrender on your knees. And all of a sudden this man walks out of your camp and he goes up to the sea and he stretches out his hands. He stretches out his hands and he says, it is finished. It is finished. And you see the most miraculous, unbelievable event ever to unfold. As he stretches out his hands, the vast sea of the law is driven back and the waters are divided. And so here's what happens. You walk through the sea on dry ground, just looking to and following that man who parted the sea, and you follow him all the way to the end. You follow him all the way to the very end. Listen, and as you stand at the end, you look back and you see the army of sin and death vanquished. And then you turn at the end and you see that man who parted the sea. You see him in all of his glory. And he says, I am the founder and the perfecter of your faith. I am the only way. I am the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. Because I am the door, I am the good shepherd, and I call out your name and lead you through. To the very end, I never let you go, and I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning, and I am the end. And I am the end of the law for righteousness to everyone 
who believes. Amen? Amen. That is what righteousness through faith looks like. That's what it is. That picture of us in surrender. As we see Jesus, the end of the law to everyone who believes. Listen to this quote. The end of the law is to justify those who keep the law. But seeing that we do not observe the law through the fault of our flesh, we do not attain this end. But Christ, he heals this disease, for he fulfills the law for us. Our election, it is unconditional. It's unconditional. And so our justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So what? What does that mean for us? How does it affect how we live? What do we do with this? Well, the rest of Romans 10, it answers that question. And it starts at the end of verse 4. Look at this. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. We talked about that. But there's that important phrase at the end to only those who look a specific certain way to our standards. Wait. that's That's not what it says. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who takes a stand on these certain issues and makes their voices known. No, that wasn't that either. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to those who follow these certain rules to make sure that they're qualified to get. It doesn't say that either. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. What does it say? To everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. Romans 10, 9 to 13. We'll get into this next week. But it says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is now No distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so that's why at the end of every service, when we give our benediction, we say we are to live to reach, what? All people with... Nothing but Jesus. We live to reach all people with nothing but Jesus.